What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. Today on our podcast, Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan is leading the charge for new environmental, social, and governance metrics, and he's keeping business leaders accountable for sustainable change. To solve these huge problems that the world faces, you have to bring capitalism to the task. Charity can't do it. Governments can't do it. The clock is ticking for airlines and their employees. CEOs like JetBlue's Robin Hayes are asking Congress for more support. The question is really, you know, is another extension of the payroll support program, is it a bridge to nowhere or is it a bridge to somewhere? And I passionately feel it's a bridge to somewhere. And a new report reveals that the Latinx community in the U.S. generates a GDP larger than Italy's or South Korea's or Brazil's. Saul Trujillo, founder of Latitude, the executive business initiative devoted to understanding the new mainstream economy. The U.S. Latino cohort outgrew the GDP of China and India. I think just knowing the numbers, I think it helps us uh, understand the path forward, probably. It's Thursday, September 24th, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Groundhog's Day here on Squawk Box (laughs) on CNBC. Seems like it. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Yeah, we begin again, again. ESG, environmental, social, and governance issues, have been a particularly hot topic on Wall Street since January of this year in Davos, Switzerland. The brisk alpine air, only the slightest whisper of a global health crisis on the horizon, and an outspoken set of world leaders like Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan discussing stakeholder capitalism. You go into investors now, they, the people that own the assets, our $3 trillion at Merrill Lynch, $25 billion of it's already in uh, ESG funds and more of it's going there, but more all investors are saying, hey, I want you to invest in companies who are doing the right thing. In June, Moynihan's Bank of America announced a $25 billion investment in ESG funds, as well as a plan to invest $300 billion over the next decade in sustainable business projects. And this week, the World Economic Forum's International Business Council, also run by Brian Moynihan, released a set of 21 sustainability metrics for companies, a reporting framework of sorts to encourage transparency and accountability to ESG initiatives like environmental impact and employee relationships. Among the guidelines, a call for companies to include ESG impacts in annual financial reports. Here's Becky Quick kicking off her conversation with Brian Moynihan today. Brian, it's good to see you. It's good to be here, Becky, and uh, nice to see you again. Let's talk a little bit about what's happening here. To this point, companies that are focused on ESG, it's kind of been an alphabet soup of how they measure these things and how they keep standards on it. You've been working on pulling together something. What are those metrics at this point, and why is it important to have standardized? Well, I think when I think about the metrics, I think about three Cs, uh, that they're comprehensive, that they represent convergence and their clarity. And so they're comprehensive in that they cover people and prosperity and governance and planet. So they cover all the SDGs, which is important because uh, various constituencies want to learn about one metric or the other. Um, 
the convergence, to your point, the alphabet soup of agencies, whether they're standard setters, governments, uh, you know, all over the world, have set, there's a lot of different metrics coming out. And so we try to converge them into one set of metrics which a company can actually disclose, working with the big four accounting firms, and the work they've done has been stellar, along with the WEF uh, team, to drive to a set of metrics which converge those metrics to a group that people can do. And then there's clarity. When you're asked by a shareholder, you know, how do you do on human capital? You'll have disclosed that. Environment, you'll have disclosed that. Uh, what's your standards about, you know, uh, who you hire, how you hire, diversity, inclusion? That's disclosed. So, so they, they answer the question with clarity to our shareholders and define stakeholder capitalism. You know, it, it, it's important because companies have been looking for more ways that they can kind of address some of these societal problems, but do it in a way that is uh, beneficial to shareholders, too. I guess I would ask, when you get this standardization, what does that mean? You think more investors will start looking at companies on these metrics and, and start putting maybe their, their shareholder dollars in, behind companies that fare well on these metrics? Well, at the end of the day, to solve these huge problems that the world faces, this is UN Week and the SDGs are the statement of the world of what we'd like to make progress on, you have to bring capitalism to the task. Charity can't do it. Governments can't do it. You have to bring the in innovation the capital, the experience in, in public-private uh, partnerships, along with all those players. And so this will help people understand that we have aligned capitalism to solving these big problems. So that, that, that's really the spirit of this, is how do you get that alignment between a shareholder's interest to say, I'm going to invest in company X because they're doing good for their shareholders and they're doing good for society, and that and is important. How do you give them the information so they can make that determination? Our research shows that companies that do well in ESG are, end up doing better or fail less. Those are important criteria for people to think about. And so it's whether your customers who want to see this, whether it's your employees who want to see this, or whether it's your shareholders who want to see this, or whether it's other constituents, it provides that clarity and that alignment. But the most important thing, it aligns capital. It aligns capitalism. It defines capitalism the way that people want to define it, which is stakeholder capitalism in solving the big problems of the world. How many companies will be taking these standards and, and putting them into place? Well, we went out to the IBC, and 85% plus of the companies are highly interested in doing it. The idea is between now and January, the usual World Economic Forum date, even though it's not going to be held in person, we will then sign up those companies. But importantly, the big four accounting firms have been working with all those companies to make sure they're ready to do it. So we expect to have a significant portion of the IBC signed up. But it's not just about the IBC. The idea is to roll these out even to private companies. It gives people a way to think about how to meet the needs of society and deliver for their shareholders. Brian, I'm not sure that anybody in the country has a better idea of what's happening in the economy than you do. Uh, Bank of America banks one out of every two households in the country. The last time we spoke with you, you said that bank accounts were actually increasing and a large number of people were saving more money. Is that still the case today? Yeah, I think the two lenses. Yes, it is still the case that people, our customers who are our broad base of banking customers have more money in their bank accounts today than they had pre-COVID crisis, especially when you get to lower uh, dollar amounts of account, average balance in the accounts or 150% for accounts under $5,000. That's the good news. Now, when you think about the, the, the other key question that we have great insight into is spending. And so for September, so far this year, the spending by Bank of America customers both on debit and credit cards, is up over last year's September first 20 days. The spending overall is up over last year, which means that as you look at the run rate of the economy now, the amount of economic activity going through our customer base, admittedly different than it was last year, not as much in restaurants, more in grocery stores as an example, is back to the level it was, which is good news when you think about the recovery in the economy going forward. 
The, those lower income accounts in particular, we saw those accounts pick up as unemployment checks kind of picked up as um, other companies started paying uh, more money for, for those emergency workers who were coming in. Have those accounts continued to climb from when we talked to you last, or has there been a slowdown in the savings rate once the unemployment and some of the other aid packages kind of rolled off? Those accounts are, are larger. They're not as large as they were when the $1,200 and the 600 were all in them, but, but they're still holding up as higher than they were before the crisis, which represents both the amount of money still in people's accounts from those programs and the new program, the executive order unemployment program, which is just going into people's accounts over the last couple of weeks and still has a bit ahead of it. And secondly, the fact that people have changed their, sp their spending habits and the, their cash flows slightly better. So it, it's still good. Now the question is where we go next in all this. If you think about the economy before the crisis in the, sec in the first quarter, um, excuse me, in the second quarter, you had to drop by 30%. So if you had 100%, you dropped down to 70 now you're, this quarter is predicted to grow between 25 and 30 percent, so it's going to go back up in the low 90s. The question is, the underlying growth rate of the economy going into the crisis was 1 to 2 percent. That takes a period of time to, to cover up that last piece. The good news is that our team, our research team, which is the best in the world, has pulled in their crossover from when the economy is bigger post-crisis than pre-crisis to the first quarter of 22 and moved it in three quarters. That means we're five quarters away. And the question, I heard you talk to one of your guests, or Andrew talked to one of your guests, is what, what would the stimulus achieve? Another stimulus would achieve speeding up that recovery potentially or ensuring that recovery takes place. And there's two aspects, the pure economic question, but also the human question. How do we help the people most affected by this virus through no fault of their own make it to the other side of the river and cross the bridge like a lot of the economy has crossed? That was my question. Senator Pat Toomey, he said that he sees less need potentially for a stimulus package now, and that's a pretty common refrain for many of the politicians we've spoken with lately. What, what would you say to them in terms of what things look like with credit card delinquencies, with mortgage delinquencies? What, what do they look like? The, look, the credit card delinquencies are lower now than they were last year, and that's because you know, as people come off deferral, we're down to a couple hundred thousand uh, credit cards left. and stuff. So the credit's been... Uh, amazingly solid. We put up big reserves and we'll see what happens when the, as the economy continues on. But the unemployment rate is still over 8%. That's not healthy for the American economy because the question is if this thing goes on longer, the question is will it become more permanent? And that's the, what the Federal Reserve and others and you've heard Chair Powell speak about. Is that's, the, that's, that's the concern. The economists are concerned that the longer it goes on you break confidence. That, that is, the sharp snapback has to be in my view, the stimulus, though, has to be aimed much more precisely than the past. It, it has to be aimed at the people who are still unemployed. It has to be aimed at the, uh, the performance venues and restaurants. Another round of PPP would be helpful to help those restaurants. You know, I'm here at One Bryant Park, and, and the issue is the restaurants downstairs are not back to the condition, and as you head to the winter, can even have outside dining. And so if you want to help those restaurants be ready to open when teammates come back to this building and the buildings around us for other companies, you, know, you need to think about another round of PPP. If you want to help the states you know, cover up the losses due to COVID, not other losses, but just due to COVID, that's a question of state help. So the debate about what exactly to do is more a debate about how fast you want the recovery to take place and the human question, which is people are suffering and we need to help them. And so I, you know, we believe at Bank of America that another round of stimulus would be appropriate, but much more f narrowly defined than in the past because the broad-based economy has come back. 92% of people are employed. Uh, the amount of spending has gone up, so they don't need to help you or me. What they need to do is help the people who are still affected by this. The, the question of states has been a, a political hot, hot potato. That's been one that has really gotten pushback. 
And I think the states and local municipalities getting help is going to be a, a pretty heavy lift at this point. When you look at the states, it's about the money that they've spent trying to deal with this directly, but also the huge tax revenue hits that they've taken. If you close down all the stores and the restaurants, you're not getting the sales that you might have traditionally gotten. What, what would you say? What would you advise on that front? Right. I think that's you're laying out the issue right in your question, which is, do you help them precisely with the, the hole in their budgets that were put by this, uh, the cost of uh, accommodating this, uh, this disease, uh, uh, school support to have distance classrooms, virtual learning, and, and things like that? Do you help them do that? That's not a new concept. That's, you know, the idea of taking that debt by the states, which was to solve a common issue this war on the virus goes back to Hamilton and pulling up the debt, which was the debts around the issue of fighting the Revolutionary War. So these are not new concepts. The question is, do we want to do it or not? And I think that it would be helpful to keep the states from you know, laying off a lot of people in another round if we help them with the precise problem, which is how to make sure, and there's been a lot of stimulus to the states, and some of it's not even spent, is to continue to provide uh, coverage for those issues that are really related to the virus. It's a national problem. It's a global problem, and we need to win the war on the virus, and the way to do that is to provide the funding to help them address it the fastest possible way. Brian, you mentioned uh, about employees coming back to work there in the building. What's the time frame for that? What's the scheduling? What's it look like now, and when do you anticipate you'll have more employees back? It's really based on, we're operating fine. We've had 90% of the employees uh, working from home, but remember, we also have, you know, our branches are open, our teammates are working there, and we've always had teammates working here in centralized locations that are, that the nature of the business, the nature of the work they do was there. Outside the United States, we have uh, brought more employees back. So it'll be slow and careful and based on safety and employees. We, we have said we'll give employees 30 days notice. Um, we will start to add some employees over the fall here, but very critical spots where we think they, those teammates can be, help our clients and our, our company operate even better than it's operating now. And it's been remarkable, not only our industry, but industry generally, how we've operated in this environment. Uh, it, that's the question. So be slow, be careful. If an employee has an issue with a, a parent at home that they've got to take care of, uh, if they don't, they don't feel comfortable, you know, it's up to them to come back. And then we'll work that through as the path of the virus becomes clear and the vaccines are available and things that we think you know, over the next year or so will become clear. But it'll be slow and careful and based on employee safety like we've based it so far. Part of the problem is not just making sure people are safe in the buildings, but in a, in a city like New York City, trying to take public transportation to get to those places. What, what do you tell people or what can you offer them in terms of having concerns about maybe getting on a subway or on a bus? That, if that's their concern, you know, that's the idea. We give them plenty of notice and let them make a decision. It's not our decision. Um, and, it, you know, we have people live in the walking distance of building. We have people commute by public transportation, and we have people that drive. It, so all those types of things go on. And but you remember, we have lots of employees outside the city, even though it's a great city and, and, and everybody focuses on it. You know, think about, uh, you know, in Jacksonville, Florida, we own our park, and lots of people drive up, and so it's a much different environment. Mm -hmm. So you have to think globally around the country. Yes, public transportation adds an element of, of outside inf uh, question how we solve it, but we have, you know, uh, Lots of employees that work in buildings that we control that they can drive up to and we can help uh, keep them safe. You know, one of your earlier guests was talking about the bubble, and the question is how do you create that kind of environment? And, and that's what's been interesting watching these colleges come back. Some it worked well, some it didn't work well. We're studying all that to make sure that we're thinking through this on a continuous basis and what's best for the employees and also what's best for the customers and ultimately get the company back to, you know, back to normal. And it may take us some time, and that's fine. Hey, Brian, um, Charlie Scharf at Wells Fargo kicked up some controversy recently when he said that the, the pool of diverse talent is, is not very deep and that he'd had trouble trying to find diverse hires. He 
he's since apologized for those comments, but I, I wonder what you're doing at Bank of America in terms of trying to find diverse hires. Well, we, we have been able to add lots of talent to this company, including diverse talent. Just in 2019, I think we hired 7,500 Latinos and, and 4,500 African-Americans into the company. And so we continue to hire. That's why we're making progress. If you look at our numbers year after year after year, at all levels of the company, we are trying to achieve the, the representation in our company that is the representation of society. So we're very diverse um, in terms of new hires, in terms of 40 plus percent are, are, are people of color, almost half women for many years in a row. And that's adding to our base that it continues to help our company grow. And if you look, we publish our, going back to the metrics and publishing that, one of the metrics that has to be published is that it's part of the uh, equation is diversity inclusion metrics. If you look at our human capital report, we publish metrics in Anybody that looks at that will see that we've made progress every year. The talent's there, and we continue to hire. Then we work special programs. Our Pathways program to was committed to hire 10,000 uh, colleagues from low- and moderate-income communities to help uh, staff the consumer business in those communities. We completed that. We said it was five years. completed about three years. For military, we are going to hire 10,000 people from the military over five years. completed about three and a half years. Our, we work heavily with the HBCUs and the HSIs to continue to hire. So it takes a comprehensive work. But this is nothing new to us. We've been after it many years, and that's why you can see that forward progress year after year after year of the diversity, male, female, and all different ethnicities in our company. And the talent's there, and we just keep, keep uh, working with them to keep developing them, and it's, that's what makes our company a great place to work. Brian, I want to thank you for your time today. We really appreciate you being here. Thank you, Becky. Next up on Squawk Pod, the clock's ticking for airlines. Tens of thousands of employees face a furlough on October 1st, and airline CEOs are still asking Congress for federal aid. JetBlue CEO Robin Hayes makes his case. We don't need a full recovery in 21 for the industry to stand on its own two feet. We just need to get back to something closer to normal, and we can take it from there. Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. Here's Joe Kernan. We're a week out uh, from airlines uh, facing the prospect of furloughing tens of thousands of workers. Major carriers are calling on Congress to provide billions of dollars in additional aid to the industry. Joining us now, Robin Hayes, JetBlue uh, CEO. Uh, thanks for joining us. It's easy to talk about rationalizing industries, Robin, but we're talking about literally tens of thousands of workers uh, that could be furloughed uh, as early as the beginning uh, of next month. How we try to preserve those jobs, whether those jobs are preservable if, if capacity is down, in your case, 55% or, or 255%, um, and whether shareholders need to be protected uh, and bailed out. We're, we're seeing a lot, of, uh, you know, a lot of varying opinions here. We had someone yesterday, Rob, and say, look, bank, you know, airlines can declare bankruptcy. They got lots of assets. They can raise money. Shareholders are not a, a special class. Why should that happen now if what we're really trying to do is, is, is keep jobs? Why do shareholders, um, you know, why are they special? What do you say to, to critics like that, Robin? Hi, Joe. Good morning. Great to uh, be, be with you. And um, uh, thanks, for, thanks for having me on the, uh, this morning. 
Um, you know, I mean, I mean this, uh, what, what we've seen with this pandemic is uh, nothing like the airline industry has ever seen before. And we've been through 9-11, we've been through the uh, financial crisis back in 2008. And, you know, when I think right here in New York as JetBlue, uh, how much uh, our own crew members, our own people have done uh, coming to work through this pandemic, uh, bringing medical workers uh, to New York. Uh, I mean, they've really been the, our heroes. And uh, whilst medical workers have been on the front line of the pandemic, there's a whole supporting cast, and that includes airline employees. And when we look at how far we've come, I mean, I look back at uh, back in April, we were at three to four percent of uh, revenues. I mean, as we sit here in September, we're tracking about 30 to 35 percent of what we would uh, normally do. So we've made some slow progress. And the question is really, you know, is, the, is another uh, extension of the payroll support program, is it a bridge to nowhere or is it a bridge to somewhere? And I passionately feel it's a bridge to somewhere. I do believe as we get into 21, the industry will, will significantly recover. Uh, hopefully there's a good news on the vaccines that we get into the early part of uh, next year. We see improved therapeutics and so many people, we all know them, have put off trips that they know they need to take. And so we don't need a full recovery in 21 for the industry to stand on its own two feet. We just need to get back to something closer to normal and we can take it from there. And for all of the heroes and all of the people that work not just in the airline industry, but the travel and hospitality industry, they need us to uh, help them through the next uh, six months. So that's what this is about. This isn't about shareholders. Um, this is about our people and making sure that we do everything we can to keep them in their jobs, keep them in their health care, keep uh, keep them in their pensions. Uh, and frankly, the government's going to pay for it one way or the other, because if these, if our people are furloughed, uh, there's a cost of unemployment, and they're not paying taxes, uh, and all of those, I think, have to be uh, factored into account. But Robin, uh, what about the point that, that in the past there, in capitalism, things like this happen, that's why we have bankruptcy laws, that's why, uh, you know, when a, when a shareholder invests in something, they know that they can either, you know, uh, they can profit and make money or, or they could theoretically lose all their money. Why should shareholders in this case uh, be a, a special class in, in terms of, uh, I, I mean, I, I think I would make the case that if you ever want to fund airlines in the future, um, and we all, I don't know if it's a utility, but certainly it's for the common good and for business, for, 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 every, for our economy, for, for people that want to not drive, 24 hours, you want a vibrant airline industry, and, and you might never be able to really raise capital again. But, but a pure capitalist would say, you know, this is what shareholders should expect. When things don't go right, you're not going to have any money left, and then we'll go into bankruptcy. You got lots of planes, you could borrow money, you could do it all on your own. You could emerge from this and maybe save just as many employees doing it that way. Why do it the well, other way with a bailout? So, of course, we've done a lot of that, Joe. I mean, uh, the, we came into this in a pretty healthy uh, uh, as a pretty healthy industry, at least here in the U.S. And, um, you know, when I think about uh, JetBlue, we came into this with unencumbered assets, a lot of airplanes. Uh, we've uh, borrowed against all of those. We've used those as collateral. We've raised billions of dollars on our own. So we're certainly not here saying uh, the government is the whole story. But what the government part of this does is get us through this and keep people in their, keep people in their jobs. When we did the original payroll support program back in uh, early in the year and uh, uh, you know we were sitting down with Treasury and we were sort of trying to understand the numbers of the payroll support program we got about 70% of that just under um, it was a grant uh, over th about 30% just under we had to uh, we had to pay back 
Uh, and so, and when we look at the portion that we was a grant, really, and you look at the numbers and you look at if, if you furlough people, the cost of that unemployment, the, the loss income into the tax system, this actually rec this absolutely this absolutely represents a really good good deal. So this isn't about the shareholders. The shareholders I care most about are our own crew members. Over half of JetBlue crew members are shareholders. For them, it's a life changing uh, it's a life changing moment when our right. uh, stock performs. So that's right. what we're focused on. We're focused on protecting jobs uh, and making sure the industry is here to uh, help the economy recover in 21. Robin, um, if this isn't about shareholders and this is genuinely about employees and, and keeping these air, these planes in the sky uh, so that when the economy recovers, why not make a proposal that says, sure, taxpayers of America, uh, we need your help. We recognize uh, that we need that help and we're prepared to dilute our own shareholders uh, and, and effectively make the government to some degree a temporary shareholder. Uh, similar to the way, frankly, uh, the bank bailouts, which were criticized terribly in 2008, but the bailouts that have been on offer to you thus far and are being requested this time on a, are on terms that are actually way worse than the bank bailouts ever were. Well, I think, you know, Andrew, uh, the way I, I look at that is uh, what is the right return on the investment for the government? Uh, and there's a number of ways of, of doing that. I, I happen to think that the way the CARES program has been very thoughtfully structured, it's already offering that uh, return on investment. Because first of all, as I've already said, the alternative is to spend that money uh, in unemployment and lost tax income. Uh, and secondly, it's to make sure that this industry is here, ready to go next year. I mean, what will happen in the event of significant furloughs, significant fleet retirements, is it, and we've seen this before, it falls disproportionately right. on smaller and medium-sized communities but, but in the Robin, United States. Robin, I'm prepared to, I, as a taxpayer, I'm prepared to give you the money. I'm just saying, what do you, I'm asking you, forget about, I, I appreciate what it's going to do for the economy broadly. That was, by the way, the argument that was made by the banks at the time, which you need to save the banks to save the economy. So let, let's, we'll all agree on that. What I'm saying is, why aren't you saying, sure, we'll, let, come dilute the shareholder, the U.S. government will end up owning a stake in this. And if it's successful, the taxpayer will be a beneficiary of that. Are you prepared to go into bankruptcy rather than take taxpayer money that would ultimately hurt your shareholder in the short term if you're really here to care about employees? I mean, the whole thing doesn't make sense. Well, Andrew, I, I, I understand. I understand the point you're making. And I and I, uh, I, you know, I think this all comes back to making sure the taxpayer gets value for money. What I'm what I'm saying is that I believe this program offers great value for money because if if these mass furloughs take place, there is a real cost of that and it's a significant cost. Uh, and I think we can't forget that, we can't ignore that, we can't be surprised about that if that if that happens. And so that is where the government is is getting a, a return. And of course the the impact, the multiplier effect on uh, airlines have all of that goes back to the government. All of that goes back in, in forms of uh, revenues. And so hey, that's what we're focused on okay. right now. And that's what we believe the path forward uh, should be. Robin, you, you signed a letter to, uh, to Mayor de Blasio and, and uh, in, in Cuomo. I know you wanted to make some, uh, some comments about how important it is, uh, you know, that, that people can come into. I'm here at that time. So I'm luckily surrounded by the NYPD's finest. But uh, I don't know about uh, parts of the city right now if I'd want to be there after dark. Yeah, I mean, uh, we, we signed a letter. I mean, uh, JetBlue uh, crew members have been coming to work throughout this, including in our uh, 
support center here in uh, Long Island uh, City. That's where uh, I am come, uh, sitting right now. Uh, and, uh, you know, we are in the process of bringing more of our people back to work. Uh, but we want to make sure that, that, that we can do that safely. Uh, and we want to make sure that some of the quality of life issues and some of the issues that our people are raising with us, uh, that they're addressed. If you look at the uh, U.S. Uh, domestic aviation market, New York is recovering more slowly than any other part of the country. And that's even though we, can, we really kind of saw the uh, coronavirus peak earlier than uh, anyone else. So we need a strong uh, economic uh, plan to dig us out of this in a way that obviously keeps everyone uh, safe. Uh, and, you know, the good news is we have fabulous resources in New York. Uh, we have uh, so many amazing and talented people across the public, private sector, communities that need to come together and help us through this. I mean, we all know people that are saying they don't want to come back into the city. We, uh, we see the pressure on small businesses. We see the hotels closing. Uh, some of these things are, uh, are going to be very hard to reverse unless we start working on it very soon. So you know, that's important to us. We, we see these. We also have a quarantine that has an impact on uh, air travel in, in New York, and, and we need to also find a way yeah. of stimulating air demand while keeping people safe. And uh, we're committed to do that, and uh, we right. look forward to speaking to you more about that in the future. Well, January 1st is coming someday, Robin, and we can just forget about a lot of stuff that happened in 2020. Maybe there's some good things that happened as well. I, no. Anyway. Anyway, uh, Robin, thank you. We appreciate it. Appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. We'll see you. Coming up on Squawk Pod, a new report reveals that if the Latinx community in the U.S. were its own country, it would have the eighth largest GDP in the world. Investor and founder of Latitude, Solomon Trujillo. Two-thirds of the U.S. Fortune 100 have no Latino on a board, which doesn't make sense to me. We'll be right back. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Squawk Pod with Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Here's Joe. Good morning and welcome uh, back to Squawk Box here on CNBC. A new report out this morning on the growing economic contributions of Latinos living in the United States. Joining us now to break down the numbers and much more, Saul Trujillo, co-chairman of the Latino Donor Collaborative and chairman of the Trujillo Group uh, Investments. He's also the co-founder of La Attitude, which uh, is kicking off later today. So the numbers, we've seen some of these before. You've brought them to us, but it keeps growing and, and it, we can... Uh, revisit these things, which are these numbers, which, you know, when you hear them, it's, it's just hard to believe. So U.S. Latino okay. GDP living here, Saul, would be the eighth largest GDP in the world uh, and bigger than 
Italy, Brazil, or South Korea, just, just living in the United States. That, that's something that people need to know about because we need to probably react in certain ways to that info. Well, good morning. Good morning, Joe. Um, you're exactly right. And I think one of the key, key points of bringing this uh, to the conversation here on, on your show is that at the end of the day, you can talk about tech, you can talk about trends, you can talk about a lot of things, but you need customers and you need workers and you need people that are creating the productivity in the economy. So GDP becomes a critical number, not just the DOW and ASDAQ and the S&P. And so one of the key things that we're, we're doing is trying to bring this reality to us in terms of how we think about our economy and the U.S. Latino cohort is driving so much growth that in the latest study from the time we talked last year, the U.S. Latino cohort outgrew the GDP of China uh, and India. China by 30%, India by 21%, and it's, and it's the, already the eighth largest, and it'll soon pass France and soon pass the U.K. and India in terms of size and, as you said, right here in our country. Right. You make the point, you're quoted saying the difference between a 21st and a 20th century are the two Ds. One is digitization, which we understand all the things that are different in our life now. Hard to imagine. I carry this thing around. It's like <laughs> carrying around a, you know, a travel guide and a map and an encyclopedia Britannica and everything else. I mean, it's, it's crazy. The second thing is demos, uh, demographics, and you can't ignore it. You could also say maybe diversity in the country. Demos and diversity are the second D. And you know, business leaders need to, to pay attention to that, if, uh, I think, if they're going to take full advantage of what, uh, you know, what, what the future brings. Well, you know, Joe, you're, you're exactly right. You know, when, when I was running Telstra and we made an entry into China, I didn't bring a lot of people from Pennsylvania and Wyoming and other places to go work there because I wanted people that understood the market. When I was in, in Africa, when I was in France, when I was in other parts of the world, you need people that understand the markets, and you need people in your senior management. You need them on boards. The Latino cohort only has 3% of all the board seats, while it's generating very disproportionate growth in the B2C sector. It might be as much as 70% when you look at net sales growth across almost any B2C sector and now moving into the B2B. So as a, as a country and as leadership, we should understand how do we catalyze more growth. So number one, it's the Latino growth cohort. It's about capital flowing, and it's also about having talent that understands the market. Well, that's, what, what do we need from policymakers? I guess we need, what would you like to see from, from policymakers, and what would you like to see from, uh, from the private sector in terms of well, what, what, what CEOs do? Great, great question. So number one, you and I talked last year about we need immigration reform because we have a we have a worker shortage. We have we're losing 350,000 people almost a month that are turning 65 that are either going into retirement or semi-retirement, whatever it is. So we have a workforce issue if we want to grow GDP. The second thing is is that we do need to stock the boards of U.S. companies. I think it's two thirds of the U.S. Fortune 100 have no Latino on a board, which doesn't make sense to me as a person that wants to understand the consumers where my growth is, right? And then secondly, in terms of the C-suites, we need, we need people that understand the markets because you know how to, you know how to, you know, the thematics, you know the, the drivers of growth, and you know how, how to relate to the, the consumer buying your right. 
products and services, whether it be B2B or B2C. All right, Saul, it's been a while. It's good to see you. I want to see you again soon. Update us on this. Crazy uh, numbers that I, I think it, just knowing the numbers, I think it helps us uh, understand the path forward probably. Anyway, yes, Saul, thanks. Yes, it's phenomenal. All right, thanks. we'll see you around. Thanks a lot. That does it for Squawk Pod today. Thank you for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.